Listener Production. Hi, I'm Margie Hartley, and welcome to Rebuilding Australia, Our Mindset, where I invite some of Australia's top psychologists and mental health experts into the studio to help guide us through what we're feeling post-bushfire and to give us tips to help us manage the emotional toll the bushfires may have had or may still have on us. I don't think anyone will forget the dramatic photo of the young boy wearing the face mask on the Mallacoota waterways in Victoria, steering his boat with a bright orange sky behind, escaping the devastation on the shoreline. As adults, we experience trauma and the effects of that. But what about the children, the young people we care for and live with? This episode, we'll talk with Professor Brett McDermott. Professor Brett McDermott is a former director of Beyond Blue and a child and adolescent psychiatrist with more than 20 years' experience in helping children and families after disasters. Brett, as a specialist in this childhood trauma, how might children be and young people be affected by the bushfire crisis in terms of their physical and mental health? So I think the easiest way to identify, and now I'm talking to parents and caregivers and teachers, people who know children, is has your child changed in some way? You're the expert in your child. Your child might be bubbly and happy or, you know, quiet and reserved and thoughtful. However they are, are they the same after the bushfire? Now, it's normal to have some degree of change. Fear, for instance, is normal. But if three weeks, four weeks, um, you know, a month later, you've noticed a personality change, then an emotional reaction might be at the bottom of that. So that's the first thing. We look for change in our children and, you know, adults are the experts in doing that. Now, once you've identified change, there's two major ways that children can change. And one is a fear, trauma pathway, and one is a depression pathway. So the fear trauma pathway, they might be obviously more anxious, they might be more vigilant of danger, they might startle more easily, they might be avoidant of reminders, they might get very upset if they see smoke in the distance. They are generally more fearful. Very young ones are clingy. They might hold on to your leg and not not let go, or they might do things that they'd stopped doing years ago, like sucking their thumb. So that's kind of the trauma pathway. The other one's the depression pathway. So, and this is especially with people who have lost, you know, lost pets or hopefully not, but tragically loved ones or lost house and connection and belongings. Those kind of young ones are more sad and tearful and withdrawn and have lost their vitality and spark. So there's two pathways, a sort of an anxiety fear one and a sad depressed one. So, Brett, are we likely to see either or, or could both be at play in the behaviour and mannerisms of our children? Well, you can actually have both pathways, which is the tragic thing. And we actually know which way, you know, we we know quite a lot about who is who. So, for instance, if you had an extremely fearful event and you thought you were going to die, 
And by the way, the only way to find out this is to ask. So if you ask a young child, did you think you were going to die? And they said yes, then they'll often go down the anxiety trauma pathway. If they say no, but had a lot of loss, then they might go down the depression pathway. And yes, some can have both. So I often hear people talk about, I don't feel safe and uh, that prolonged impact of not feeling safe. Is this part of the pathways over a long term? Absolutely. And what we know is that fear is incredibly important to survival. So fear is normal. Fear is natural. If we didn't have fear, we might walk across the road without looking. Fear is really, really good. But fear needs to be in response to a stimulus. That's dangerous. If you're still fearful a month later, two months later, nine months later, and that stimulus is not there anymore, then that's highly problematic. So the whole kind of, you know, raison d'etre, if you like, of PTSD or, you know, one of the, the foundational kind of beliefs is that the fear system hasn't turned off and you're acting as if it's still dangerous and that's causing you symptoms and impairment. And can this stay till adulthood? Is this something you've not dealt with when it's recognised early in children that will become a long-term issue? Absolutely, but not necessarily always to a kind of clinical level. So, for instance, I was in the 1974 Brisbane floods. So I've just given away my age, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a long time ago. But I can still remember the smell of the mud that flooded. And in fact, I was in the 2010 Brisbane floods and that smell came back. It smelled to me like the same mud. So I had a memory that happened to be smell that lasted over 30, 40 years. Now, that memory wasn't particularly traumatic. It was just I had associated a very emotional time with that memory. If, however, that memory caused me to have a panic attack every time I smelt that or avoid, you know, Queensland every time I smelt that or thought that there was going to be a flood every time I smelt that, that would be highly problematic and that would cause me some impairment. So sometimes people are going to have this reaction to smoke and fire and that weather and that red sky for the whole life and that'll just be a reminder that this is frightening and for the body to activate but some people are going to have it to the level where it's problematic. Mm. I'm fascinated by the very young children who cannot express themselves emotionally um, or haven't got the emotional language to uh, communicate with us about how they're feeling. What might be some of the signs we see in preschoolers, for example? So in the very young children, I think uh, they do communicate, in fact, very well, but you have to know what to look for. So I remember going to, I remember going on a home visit and a young, you know, three to four year old had got a red crayon and they had crayon the walls at toddler level all through the house and it looked like a grass fire Mm -hmm. and the parents very dutifully kind of cleaned it off like one of those paint ads and then the next day the child did it again and they did this for months and we would call that post-traumatic reenactment or post-traumatic play. Uh, You can see it after, by the way, a car accident. If if you have a, a very young child in a car accident and you give them 
two toy cars, they can often repetitively bash them together and bash them and bash them and bash them together, reenacting that traumatic event. I know children who their game is to prepare to evacuate and their game is to constantly pack things up um, or constantly pretend that they're looking for a, a, a radio message or a text message. And that's post-traumatic play. So little ones, that's something to look for in their play or in their, you know, crayoning and painting and that sort of stuff. Uh, The other thing in little ones, we look for what's called regressed behavior. And regressed behavior is going back to an earlier phase that they mastered, but now they can't do it anymore. Uh, The absolute classic one, which all parents will know about, is when they appear in your bed at usually three in the morning or two in the morning and they hadn't done that for a long time and they might do that night after night after night um, or they want to have help being fed but they, they've they achieved that a year ago or they want help being dressed. Their behaviours regressed. Um, so they're very common things. I suppose the last one with little children is they can suddenly and paroxysmically, for no obvious reason, just lose it. It's a highly technical term. They just lose it, okay? And you see this in supermarkets and things and nothing's happened. There's been no trigger that you know, but they might have had some internal experience, a memory or a thought or a reminder, and suddenly they're back in this frightening event. I'm keen to understand, too, the older age groups and what we might just look out for. Are we also looking for regressed behaviour in that group of young people? So I've seen regressed behaviour in um, in 50-year-olds. So, you know, you can actually get regressed if you have enough trauma at any age. Uh, but that's not that typical. I mean, in adolescence, the older you get, the more likely you have an adult presentation. So, you know, older adolescents, you know, 14, 15, 16, and older can have very typical features of depression. They can enunciate sadness. They can feel low. They can lose, um, you know, again, their vitality. They can lose their interest and their pleasure. And when they see their friends or when they see a beautiful blue sky or they see a funny video, they've lost that pleasure response. And they can, you know, lose their appetite. They can get sleep problems. They can be pessimistic about the future. So an older adolescent can have a very typical depression presentation. They can also have a very typical PTSD presentation. So they might get flashbacks and they might have intrusive memories and thoughts and they might spend a lot of time pushing it out of their mind and purposely not thinking about it. And again, they might feel kind of wooden and numb and maybe detached because they spend so much time pushing it out of their mind. And they might have their autonomic nervous system might be supercharged. So again, they're, you know, they might have complaint of palpitations and they're breathing fast and they're ready to fight or flight. So the older you get, the more kind of typical uh, the presentation looks like. Mm. So what do we do to help? How is our range of skills as as adults, what do we draw on there to really have a the best impact on young people who've experienced this trauma and may have an ongoing underlying fear of their future? So there's some extremely good news here. And the good news is that overwhelmingly, 
most children uh, respond incredibly well to uh, good parenting and most children's emotional nurturance is by their parents and parents invariably do this extremely well. Some little, I hope, helpful comments to, to help them do it better. So there's things we can do in our communication and there's things we can do in our behaviour as adults, as caregivers and parents and teachers. So firstly, communication. Communication is kind of like we want to contain the dialogue around the bushfires. We want to hear it, but we want to contain it. Now, what I mean by this is I know people who, um, you know, adults who could not stop talking about the disaster they were in, and it might have been an earthquake or a, a flood or a fire. They couldn't stop talking about it. And they talked about it so much that any child would think this is just an ongoing issue. It's clearly incredibly distressing by one of, to one of the most imp- important people in my life. Therefore, therefore, I should be distressed as well because mum or dad can't stop talking about it and mum and dad are still hypervigilant. I mean, they obviously wouldn't use those words. Mum and dad are still anxious. Mum mm. and dad are still looking out for danger. So I'm going to get on board here and I'm going to look out for danger and the present is on and the, the threat is ongoing. So one little trick is to, is to monitor yourself and make sure you're not monitoring persistent hypervigilance and persistent anxiety. Now, the other end is again, I know parents and, you know, males, and I'm one of those, a little bit more guilty of this, you know, you go quiet and solid and don't talk about it at all. Now, children are interesting. They think, well, if dad won't even talk about this, maybe it's so overwhelming that he's too scared to even talk about it. Jeez, it must be bad. You know, they, they, they're good at these kind of rationalisations. And then the so, information comes from other sources, doesn't it? If, well, particularly right. if they're not spoken about by the parents, social media, media sources and well, that's others. That's right. That's right. So, in fact, you have to talk about it if you're going to have a family dialogue because the other parent is coming into the house. The other parent is, of course, you know, media of any, of any type. So I would advise um, people to talk about it and even to have a special time to talk about it and with little children we often have a little book where we take it out every day and we say we're going to talk about the bushfire um, and we're going to open the book and we're going to draw some pictures or write what we feel or put you know do an activity or cut out some pictures and try to keep it positive and but then we're going to very charismatically close the book and put it up on a shelf and say we'll take it out tomorrow and that's it you know, and if someone says, I want to talk about the bushfire, well, go and write in the book, but we're going to talk about tomorrow before dinner, and then we're going to run around for a bit after dinner. You know, we're going to do something nice, but we're going to contain it. We're not going to talk about it for six hours. We are going to talk about it, but we're going to contain it. So that's a little bit about the communication things we can do. The other communication thing is is this idea of, being an active collaborator in your child's, you know, information, you know, media watching. It is overwhelmingly better to sit beside someone when they watch scary events to help them process it. 
Now, a good example of this is after 9-11, some children thought that 40 or 50 or 60 buildings fell over a one-week period because they saw the two towers from different directions and different angles and different kind of, you know, lighting and stuff, and they saw it for days and days and days. And they had no understanding that it was tragically two towers. You had to sit beside your child and and talk that through with them. This is interesting because when we overlay that trauma and sitting with someone and watching the bushfires, we're in constant imminent threat at the moment of bushfires occurring again. How do we balance that knowledge that there is going to be another bushfire or a threat and that idea of soothing ourselves and feeling safe in the current moment? So I think in terms of the interaction with a child, you can, again, model calmness. You can model being contained yourself. You can actually give some very clear indications about time and space to get to that bushfire that's burning at the moment. We would have to drive for six hours or we'd have to walk for four days. You know how far it is to walk to school? We would have to walk that distance every day for two years to get to that fire. Oh, that's a long way away. Yeah, it's a long way away. And by the way, that other image, that happened yesterday. That's over now. So again, you sit and you ground ground your child in time and space. And if it is a real threat, then you say, don't forget, we have a safety plan. We have an escape route. By the way, we have two escape routes in case that escape route's not very good. And we have these wonderful people helping us to fight the fires and we have a process to tell us how dangerous it is. And we've got somewhere safe to go. We're going to go to grandma's or we're going to go to Uncle Bob's or, you know, you, you very quietly and in a reassuring way point out your safety steps. And by the way, if you don't have those safety steps, you need them so you can do this. And communicate them to your child or young person, or I would imagine even young adult who hadn't experienced this before. Or yourself. (laughs) Okay, so I I like this idea of self-management and Mm self-talk so we can help children as well. Mm -hmm. So so the other thing I mentioned is, so I mentioned communication. The other thing I mentioned is behaviour. I mean, clearly we can communicate incredibly strongly non-verbally. And, you know, if we go around our business in a, in a measured way, if we take children with us, if we're going to check the gutters, obviously we don't want them up ladders, but, you know, sit here and, uh, you know, dad's going to check the ladder or mum's going to check um, the gutters and, you know, let's go check our safety plan. Here it is on the fridge. Excellent. Could work us. Let's go, you know, make sure the car's packed. Yep. Excellent. So you can actually involve them and involving them won't make them more upset. Involving them will actually, you know, it's kind of get with the program. Involve them will, you know, that that will contain children. Does that allow them a sense of control over uh, the activity to help prepare themselves and others for the what might happen again? Absolutely. And one, of course, one kind of uh, metaphor, is that the right word, is for, for, for trauma, for fear, is, is fearing out of control. And we know that routines, but also 
going through our plan, I mean, this is what everyone in the military does. We, we train and train and train and train for the possibility of something happening. It's a very similar process. It gives us a sense of, of control. How important is the community and the groups of people who are all going through similar traumas to come together and talk about the trauma? Or should they all be having happy times that are routine and nothing to do with the fire? What's the right right way for the community to help children through this? I think children have a wonderful kind of meter for people who aren't being kind of truthful and people who are glossing over a traumatic event. So I think that, you know, trying to completely, you know, not address the current issue, I would suggest that's that's problematic, especially when there's smoke and people are wearing masks and whatever. So I would not advise that. But I would advise people to definitely come together. There has been research that so that shows that social connectedness, if you are socially connected, it decreases your chance of getting post-traumatic stress disorder. So social connectedness is fantastic. I would warn people, and um, you might remember from school, you know, the one person who was incredibly anxious before exams, you knew never to sit with them before the exam. It just made you anxious. I mean, anxiety is a bit contagious. So you do have to be a little bit careful to not get involved in a, in a, in a process which is, which is making things worse. So, you know, a community meeting where people are angry, that's not a place for children. That's a grown-up space. A community meeting where people are very fearful, uh, again, that's a grown-up space. A community meeting where, you know, we get together and we, we share food and drink and we thank our bushfire folks and we, we talk about, you know, how we can keep our community safe and how we can get on with business is a fantastic thing. What about the idea of losing an animal? Do we replace that animal straight away? Do we try and make things normal again through routines and habits? Or do we allow a period of grief for the children? So the question about animals is one of the ones that I find the most difficult. You know, children are incredibly invested in their animals and it's 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 one of the wonders of children. You know, the relationship with my children with our Labrador you know, I'm sure they liked him much more than me for most of, you know, for many years, you know, they had this beautiful relationship. So children are really feeling very bad about lost pets and also national icons like koalas and things like this. It's actually a very difficult conversation. I think what we have done is we've built up rituals over thousands of years and they're there for a reason and we need to respect them. So I would have a ritual response about a lost pet. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, remembering the pet, talking about it, gradually steering conversation to fond memories and fun memories and great memories, you know, starting a, a scrapbook, finding, you know, finding pictures and, you know, and acknowledging that it's painful, but acknowledging that, you know, this was a wonderful relationship and, and actually doing what we normally do in, in terms of bereavement. So I wouldn't rush out to buy another pet. I wouldn't rush out to replace that pet. I would 
you know, do what we do around death, and that's to to talk about it, to express our emotions, to feel something about it, and then later on, you know, decide if we'd like to, you know, to have another pet. So who do we speak to, Brett? Who do we go out and speak to when we need support as parents, as carers, as educators? We're trying to find the support we need in a moment to make sense of our parenting, our children's responses, our other children's friends' responses. Where can we go and who can we speak to? I think the first response should always be to seek some information. And this is also the easiest response. So I think because Australia now has a 20 or 30 year legacy of dealing with the emotional effects of disaster, Australia has, has in fact led the world in this in this area. I think there's great information. My, my advice is the advice everyone's heard before. Go to organisations you love and trust. Go to Beyond Blue those kind of organisations, and they will have, I know they have, wonderful kind of, you know, conversation pieces and tip sheets and lists of, um, you know, lists of symptoms and signs and what to expect. So that's the first thing. The first thing is on our phones or on our computers, we can find that very quickly. Now, the second step is, you know, we have very trained caring professionals. And also there's organisations that are out there upskilling as we speak. So I know that the federal government has funded an 8 million program to upskill the knowledge base of teachers. Now, I would never want to turn a teacher into a therapist because teaching's hard enough as it is. But what we want to do is make sure every teacher can identify a child who might be having some bushfire-related trauma and know where to refer them. So, you know, you could discuss with your teacher, especially a teacher that knows your child well, how they're going and how they're dealing in class and if they're seeming to be fearful or withdrawn and where you can get help. We're also very fortunate uh, that we have um, a cadre of wonderful general practitioners and I know that uh, Phoenix Australia and the National post-traumatic stress organisation is sending out tip sheets to to GPs just to make sure they're really across PTSD and bushfire responses. So talking to your GP is a fantastic thing. Beyond Blue are going to be employing people in schools to help smooth the pathway between a parent wanting help and where to get that help. So that's going to be rolled out. And then, again, through things like better access to psychology programs, we will have access to, you know, caring professional and child and adolescent mental health teams and, you know, private psychology and occupational therapy and counsellors. So there's layers. And for most people, the bottom layer for most people, most children, they're going to do incredibly well with insightful parenting. They'll do wonderfully well. The second layer, they'll do very well with parents who need a bit more help and some, you know, parenting advice around this and we'll be rolling that out through skills. The next layer is mild to moderate depression or PTSD and those folk are going to do really well with, um, you know, counselling through, organised through a general practice or organised through a better access psychologist. And then the final little top of the triangle, there are unfortunately some people who are going to have a significant post-traumatic stress disorder 
after one bushfire, we found, you know, that some children actually do get PTSD after a bushfire, and those people are going to need high-level professional help. And again, there are programs in Australia which teach trauma-focused cognitive behaviour therapy and really high-level trauma therapy and, uh, you know, those kind of programs, training programs are going to be rolled out for those who don't already know how to do that. And there's a lot of that knowledge in the bush already. And people do need to remember as well that often people become resilient and there are some benefits of having lived through and survived and connected with others post a traumatic event. So not to discount the current trauma, but there are benefits. And if we can look forward, that sometimes that allows us to be stronger. Absolutely. I was personally involved in some work in Grantham, uh, the flood where, in fact, 23 people died in mm-hmm. that village. And when I came home from Grantham, I found three ladies digging mud off my bottom floor and sweeping up. I politely inquired who they were and then, <laughs> and then you know, made friends with these lovely people helping uh, clean up my house. So it's a wonderful time to meet your neighbours. It's a wonderful time to learn about your own personal resilience. It's a wonderful time to, to learn about community and community spirit. There are lots of possibilities for post-traumatic growth, without a doubt. Professor Brett McDermott, thank you so much for your kind, practical advice, your insightful tips, and your ability to help us make sense of how we help the mental impact of the bushfires on children. My pleasure. Thank you. If you're feeling distressed or overwhelmed, mental health professionals are available 24-7 at the Beyond Blue Support Service on 1300 2246 or at beyondblue.org.au forward slash get support. Rebuilding Australia, Our Mindset was presented by me, Margie Hartley, in collaboration with Beyond Blue and Lifeline. Audio production by Matt Nikolich, produced by Matt Dwyer, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Listener.